millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi there and welcome to the Explaining History podcast and today I'm going to talk a little bit about the founding of the BBC uh, under the uh, auspices uh, of its first Director General, uh, Lord John Reith. Um, In uh, the years just after the First World War, uh, the government saw radio with immense suspicion. Um, This is the British government, obviously. Um, they uh, thought that any means of uh, mass transmission of of ideas to the public um, was something that needed to be treated extremely carefully uh, in an age of uh, the development of mass ideologies um, and serious threats on the right and the left to uh, the continuance of uh, liberal capitalist democracy. Um, There was, in the eyes of the government, uh, a lot to be worried about. Uh, as it transpires, most threats to the liberal order in Great Britain between the wars were, you know, pretty much pretty much phantoms compared to uh, events on the continent. But that doesn't prevent uh, politicians at the time from having heightened senses of anxiety. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I did a podcast on uh, labour unrest. Um, uh, between in the 1920s and the immediate aftermath of the war. So you might want to listen to that. It'll give you kind of some wider context about what I'm going to talk about um, going forward. In 1922, the British Broadcasting Company was established. Um, Guillermo Marconi, who had um, pioneered radio technology, found that the government was incredibly obstructive, but they relent um, by 1922, and but only because it is licensed by the government. Um, it becomes, right from the get-go, an organisation that has a close and complicated relationship with the state. Um, it's There's perhaps not enough scope right now to talk about the entire... Uh, complexity of the history of the BBC. But one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about it uh, and its, its origins today is because as a um, national broadcaster, I don't, I don't think it's appropriate to call it a state broadcaster because it's not really um, directed by the state. Um, the licence fee 
it is a, a statutory um, obligation that all um, payers have, that all listeners and viewers have in the UK to, to pay, um, but it's not a state broadcaster in as much as it's, it is not meant to, at least, um, parrot the views of, of the state. Um, in recent decades, there's been considerable argument and fairly justifiable argument is that that's what it now tends to do. Uh, but that's the scope of a media studies debate and uh, we'll maybe tackle that one another time. The um, impact in the 19th, from 1922 onwards that the government has on the uh, BBC is uh, pronounced um, but also subtle as well. The BBC have, shall we say, certain institutional biases, um, but the commitment of the BBC is ostensibly to remain impartial. The close relationship meant that radio programmes reflected the values of the government and the BBC, uh, not necessarily in the interests of the listener. As a result, BBC broadcasts often didn't reflect the quality of life experienced by many people in the 20s and 30s. Instead, it reflected um, the values that uh, middle-class British people and the British establishment had um, and made um, broad assumptions about what it is working-class people listened to, enjoyed and understood. In 1927, the BBC is given a royal charter and it becomes uh, the British Broadcasting Corporation, um, becomes uh, publicly owned, and the independence in the BBC Charter, editorial independence is granted, and uh, John Reith then became the first director general. Um, Reith's uh, mission that he set out in the 1920s was that the BBC ought to do three things inform, educate, and entertain. The entertain bit was um, the uh, the most disliked of of Reith's um, uh, Reith's objectives, um, and in the twenties and thirties, um, the BBC broadcast lectures, concerts, and programmes that Reith thought would be beneficial to ordinary people. So Reith had a real patrician attitude towards working working class British people, um, and he thought that their understanding of the world could be improved through the BBC, and no doubt it probably was. Um, Reith claimed that the BBC should give the public slightly better than it thinks it wants. And this, after the uh, war um, in the 1960s, with the advent of ITV, and later in the 60s and early 70s with the advent of um, the kind of tabloid newspaper reporting we now know with Rupert Murdoch and The Sun. This was a, a direct attack that these institutions had on the BBC. The idea that this was a kind of a liberal elitism talking down to the ordinary man and telling the ordinary man what it is that he really should be enjoying instead of serving up what the ordinary man in the ideas of um, people like Rupert Murdoch um, should actually want or actually wanted. Both paradigms, you could say, are equally patronising um, and simply aiming for the lowest common denominator uh, in the assumption that this is what um, you know the lower orders are entertained by. Again, is, is uh, probably as offensive, if not slightly more so. 
Reese himself is remembered by those who work with him as something of an authoritarian tyrant and an elitist, somebody who quite possibly would have uh, fitted in with certain of the more rabid parts of Fleet Street today. Now, for my money, one of the best books that you can have on your shelf on the subject of media history in the UK is Power Without Responsibility by um, Seaton and uh, Curran, Gene Seaton and uh, James Curran. Gene Seaton being the kind of the uh, uh, official historian of the BBC right now. Um, and the the reason why this is such a, a good book is, is it combines a number of different um, disciplines, a, a real detailed understanding of media history, and also uh, a number of different um, sociological and critical theory approaches to understanding the media. Uh, it's pretty much like the uh, standard text for media studies courses, but and there's about nine editions of it, because uh, obviously the media doesn't stop changing, but um, well worth owning a copy. The model for the BBC that kind of predates the BBC is the post office, um, a, a, an example of a national, essentially a nationally run business. Um, that William Beveridge of the Beveridge Report fame said in 1905 that the GPO was uh, the one socialist experiment that now works well. Um, other aspects of uh, national life that were um, public corporations um, set up before the BBC were forestry and the water um, uh, supply system uh, and electricity. Um, so, I mean, these are, these are all sort of, in essence, nationalisations before the concept existed. Um, the First World War had been uh, one of the really important periods that had created um, a broad consensus across the nation for what's known as, as public service utility. What this means is that if, if you look at um, AJP Taylor's history of uh, Britain uh, 1914 to 1939, he makes the point that in 1914, um, he refers to Englishmen, but he really means British people, um, they were some of the most unregulated, lowest taxed uh, people in the world whose relationship with the state was fairly minimal. Um, they, uh, Britain was uh, a country uh, founded on notions of 19th century liberalism that the state has a limited amount to do in the lives and the businesses of anybody. And not only was this a, a guarantor of some kind of notion of freedom, one that is uh, far more readily embraced now in the USA, but also it meant that taxes would be low. Well, the First World War destroys all that. I mean, the First World War um, and uh, the Defence of the Realm Act um, says essentially the state has a competence wherever it sees fit for the duration of the war. And actually, state-run enterprises during the war do extremely well. The reorganisation of war industries under David Lloyd George as Minister for Munitions is uh, a sight to behold, and it's that that is a considerable factor in winning the war for Britain. And at the end of the war, um, the state, uh, the case for state intervention and state management has been roundly made. And then during the 1920s and 30s, again, the idea 
that um, things can be simply left to market provision in times of an, almost an ending economic crisis seems to be irrational and backward. So there be there is was always um, opposition to um, the centralisation of health insurance, coal, and the railways, um, and indeed rationing of food. But um, the by the nineteen twenties, the generation of reformers who'd lived through the war and had been civil servants during that time um, experienced uh, were experienced in organising and the centralised distribution of resources. Um, and they were um, able to make the case for all manner of public utilities, uh, broadcasting being one of them. The development of public corporations meant that um, market forces uh, had to be rejected, and in their place was the idea that efficiency and planning and control by experts, and for that matter, elite experts... Um, was really the the medicine that would um, make uh, something like the BBC work. So the BBC was never going to become, um, given the intellectual and economic and social climate of the times, um, a free market enterprise. And there was um, a, as much a fear of transmitting Bolshevik ideas um, as uh, as much as that was a fear. I believe I think there was a fear. Transmitting the kind of raucous brash. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get thirty, thirty. Ready to get thirty, ready to get twenty, twenty, twenty. Ready to get twenty, twenty. Ready to get fifteen, 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 fifteen. Just fifteen bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com/slash switch. Forty five dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited, more than forty gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost fifty pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Um, aggressive and hypersexualized. Uh, American culture of enterprise. Bear in mind at this point in time, America during the First World War has finally eclipsed um, Great Britain. The year 1916 sees the end, really, of uh, British economic um, hegemony and the rise of American. And along with that, the rise of an American cultural hegemony. Um, Reith was very keen to make sure that um, things like uh, jazz um, and American uh, music was kept out of the acceptable range of um, music to be broadcast on BBC radio. In return for its monopoly status, the BBC was also able to render service to the government in times of crisis, for example during the 1926 general strike, which we'll look at in just a moment. Impartiality, uh, the first great test of impartiality for the BBC came during the general strike and Reith knew that the survival of the BBC would depend very much on how that notion of impartiality 
um, was navigated during the strike. Um, one of the things the strike does, because it's a, a national strike, is it creates a national audience for broadcast news. For the first time, people look more to um, the radio than they do to newspapers to find out what's going on. Beatrice Webb, whom I speak about uh, periodically, the um, social reformer and uh, social researcher, said in her diary that the sensation of the general strike centres around the headphones of the wireless set. There were at the time two million wireless license holders and that represented a far greater number of listeners. And um, there was obviously, um, for every license holder, there is communal listening. The wireless was a centrepiece in the living room and it was how the family interacted, much as we, uh, in the post-war era, we became, um, say we, people in Great Britain, and you know we're going around the world here, people in Great Britain became um, TV watchers and we, we describe, have been described as a TV nation. Before the war, in the interwar era, um, it, we could be thought of as a wireless nation. The um, two million license holders um, were a significant factor in the uh, crisis of the general strike. Um, people were able to become far more um, involved and engaged, if not necessarily informed, with the strike. Um, through the medium of wireless. The ability of the BBC to transmit information that at first glance appeared to be ideologically neutral and yet still conveyed key messages from the government was a kind of a far uh, more uh, subtle and powerful innovation in state propaganda um, than had previously existed. The First World War, as Seaton and Curran point out, um, the during the First World War, uh, propaganda had pr- portrayed all Germans as sort of baby butchering monsters, and it's the the kind of um, over top hyperbole that ultimately becomes um, unsuccessful. People stop believing it and listening to it. In order to underline that point, when Winston Churchill launched a propaganda newspaper, the day the British Gazette, um, a um, daily news sheet. Um, that uh, reported the kind of the um, the evils of Bolshevism, basically uh, one of Churchill's um, uh, favourite talking points. It was seen as being so uh, ludicrous and over the top that it was uh, ignored. Churchill wanted to um, seize the BBC as a state and turn it into a a state propagandist. Um, Reith um, said that. If the BBC um, came out in support of the miners or was seen as being sympathetic to the miners, that it would be simply shut down. Um, and so Reith was fairly clear as to where power lay and, and what to, to, to do about this. It could be said that Reith was an enthusiastic uh, in supporter of the government um, and his own his own particular biases and his own particular prejudices meant that this was always likely to be the case. Reith was cleverer than Churchill though and he cautioned um, Churchill and the government to let the BBC do its job. He said that firstly 
the um, the crisis would be um, heightened if the BBC was suppressed or if the government was seen as trying to suppress information uh, at all. Um, and he said that the BBC needed to gain the trust of the strikers, the trust of the government um, and the public at large. Um, and the result of this would be that the BBC could be part of some kind of compromise, uh, some kind of uh, resolution. Not, you might argue, the BBC's role at all. He said, In the end, conciliations of some kind must supervene, and the BBC could act as a link to draw together the contending parties by creating an atmosphere of goodwill towards its service on both sides. So by being a national institution, being recognised as a national institution, part of the national conversation, um, this would help to pour oil on troubled waters. Reith was not inclined, however, to help the government, um, to help the, the strikers force the government to capitulate, and he was not inclined to help find a compromise that really um, was too far in the favour of the workers. And he uses this term, it's a very interesting one. He um, says that trust gained by what he calls authentic impartial news could then be used. It was not necessarily um, a, an end in itself. So w what he's saying here really is that that which is presented in its authenticity um, seemingly without bias um, that can gain trust from the population can then, come to contradict Reith, um, be used for the political ends of the government. As if to underline his biases, he said, since the BBC was a national institution and since the government in this crisis was acting for the people, the BBC was for the government in the crisis too. One historian, one biographer of Reith, Patrick Renshaw, has said that Reith would have supported um, the union against the pit owners, the, the uh, National Union of Miners against uh, the pit owners, but he was not prepared to support the TUC, the Trade Union Congress, against the government. And Martin Gilbert, the very famous biographer of um, Churchill, has made the same point that uh, Churchill would probably have looked to find some kind of compromise between the miners and the pit owners, but it, the, he was not interested in any kind of compromise with the TUC. It was in 1926 that the, B, the BBC has its news-gathering breakthrough. Prior to that, press barons um, such as Rothermere and uh, Beaverbrook and the like had put pressure on the government to prevent the BBC from having any news-gathering role. Um, the press had prohibited the BBC from collecting news and the strike enabled uh, the BBC to develop uh, its own news service. The BBC, during the strike, reports the views of strikers and it reports the views of strike breakers, but no representatives of organised labour, the Labour Party, for example, or any trade unions, are allowed to be reported. Again, giving this very misleading picture of the strike, there is a, a, a clear difference between representing the views of an individual striker who is not speaking in any collective sense and banning the views of any of a representative of organised labour who is presenting a collective 
um, vision, a collective standpoint, which is obviously what a strike actually is. Reith believed simply that uh, the organisers of Labour were wrong um, and didn't want the public to be exposed to these views. Um, the um, strike leader, Willie Graham, wrote to Reith saying, The government emphatically deny that they interfere with the BBC in any way. On the other hand, the company states that it, is, it was not a free agent. I'm sure that you will agree that it is impossible to make any sense of these two statements. Um, the reputation that the BBC get in the 1920s uh, with uh, the working classes is not a positive one. The BBC um, learnt how to um, censor itself. The BBC, during the strike, really understand where the boundaries, the invisible parameters and boundaries of its power and its mandate actually lie. Um, and the general strike is a great exercise for the BBC and for the government in the use and the perfection of state propaganda. Simply bludgeoning the audience will not work. It has to be based on trust and it has to be traced based on the appearance of impartiality. Because the strike was condemned by the government as being politically motivated, political mischief, and because the BBC was being seen to be above politics and apolitical, the um, consequences were that the trade union movement was deeply harmed by the strike and seen as being partisan and divisive, whereas the BBC, um, throughout the uh, interwar and then post-war years, was uh, really able to polish its halo, was able to uh, present itself as uh, above politics and something a far more national institution um, as opposed to um, a governmental one. Now, to say that it is a national institution is, is pretty valid. I mean, it certainly is. But the reasons why the political and ideological uh, journey to becoming that national institution, a key part of that is are the events of the general strike. Um, I hope you find this useful. If you're doing British history, um, I think you might find this handy, particularly if you're talking about the general strike. Um, if you can give us a review on um, iTunes, that would be grand, um, and um, five stars ideally. Um, do remember to subscribe to this channel, and we'll catch you on the next Explaining History podcast. Thanks, bye.